Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. He is risen indeed. Glory. Hallelujah. Easter changes everything. Everything. Yes, everything. Easter changes how we experience every moment of life, every joy, every challenge, every grief, and not only life. Easter changes how we view and experience death, and not only death. Easter changes the eternity which follows death. Jesus' crucifixion is absolutely, without question, the hinge of human history. So I don't, I don't want to lose track of the fact that we are people of the cross and people of Calvary. But we are also people of the empty tomb. So when Jesus' crucifixion, when we refer to that as the hinge of human history, we must also recognize that it is the resurrection which reveals the direction in which the future now swings wide open to the possibility of real life, abundant life, true life. We are people of the cross, yes, but we are also people of the empty tomb. We are Easter people. We are the people who grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We are the people who seek to change the world, knowing as we do so that the real transformation and ultimate renewal of all things is yet to come when the one who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated right now at the right hand of the Father comes back comes back to set it all right, and he is coming again. We are the people who see every brokenness, every broken body, every broken relationship, broken heart, broken promise, broken person, broken system, broken branch, every broken thing as evidence of the consequence of the fall in the garden. And we are the people who live by faith in the one who was broken, yes, raised, that we might experience and proclaim the glory of his power and his love and his all-sufficient grace. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changed me. How has it changed you? We're going to talk with some Easter people today about the reality of Easter and our Easter hope. And we're going to lead off with our friend Sheridan Voicey. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Joining me now, Sheridan Voicey. You may know him from the BBC. You may also know him as the author of books, including Reflect with Sheridan. He and I have talked about uh, both on former occasions, and he's back today to talk with us about Easter hope. Sheridan, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, Good morning, Carmen, and a very happy Easter to you and to our listeners. Happy Easter. He is risen. 
Indeed, his reason again. And just like you were saying with your intro, I mean, everything changes now. We had um, a very prominent uh, member of the Humanist Association here in the United Kingdom tweet out on uh, Good Friday. Uh, I think the, the tweet went something along the lines of, just a little reminder that dead people don't come back to life again. And it mm. caused all sorts of a, a Twitter storm over here because, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a nasty thing. But, you know, that's that's the reality, isn't it? The fact is we know that. Greeks and Romans and Jews in the first century knew that as well. And that's the very reason why we're talking. Dead people don't come back to life, but one did, and everything's changed as a result of that. So that's exactly right. My pastor yesterday, um, I mean, I just, I love Easter worship, right? Every Sunday should feel like Easter worship. Um, where the people of God are just exalting over the reality of the empty tomb. And um, I certainly had the privilege of doing that yesterday. And, you know, my pastor, one of the one of the points that he was making is, you know, you can mark it on the calendar. You can mark on the calendar the day that a virgin gave birth, um, you know, to, to the man we call Jesus. And you can mark it on the calendar the day that that same man died on a cross in a, you know, in a place, uh, in time and space. And you can mark on a calendar the day that he rose from the dead. And you can Mm -hmm. mark on the calendar, although we don't know the date yet, you can mark on the calendar the day that he's coming again. Talk with us, Sheridan, about Easter hope. Yeah, I mean, everything that you've talked about there uh, just shows the historicity of our faith, you know, for many other religions and philosophies, you know, kind of God is up in this kind of ethereal world and we can't really prove anything because it's all a matter of quote unquote faith. Now, of course, faith is at the very heart of our Christian faith as well. But actually Christianity, in the words of a friend of mine, John Dixon, puts its head on the chopping block and actually comes into time and earth and space and is all connected with historic events. Um, the first few verses of the Gospel of Luke, Luke kind of says, uh, look, I've I've gone and researched these things. I've been an investigative journalist and I've got you names and dates and I've got you specific historical accounts so that you can kind of tie all this back up and know what the truth is. So our hope ties into something that is incredibly historical. I mean, all of these things uh, have been kind of recorded in history and you just imagine that 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 first Easter Sunday morning and everybody has been in the wilderness. I mean, that's the big theme that I kind of read Easter through these days, Carmen, is this kind of theme of the wilderness, uh, that when you're going through the wilderness, when you, it might be like you're going through some kind of horrific event, maybe for, for my wife and I, we've talked about this before, it was 10 years of infertility. We were in the wilderness of infertility for a decade. For other people, it's the wilderness for them of singleness. It's not a chosen thing. They just haven't been able to find their their uh, their, their Mr. or Mrs. Right yet. For others, it's career. For, other, for others, it's a, it's a complete spiritual wilderness. They're not too sure where God is or, or whether they can believe in him anymore. Uh, Jesus enters that wilderness. And of course, the first idea comes back from the Jews when they were leaving uh, their uh, entrapment in Egypt. And they go on this little journey that lasts 40 years, wandering around in circles in the wilderness. Uh, And then Jesus enters two wildernesses. The first one, when he's beginning his ministry, he comes out of his baptism. The Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He faces those temptations uh, powerfully 
And the second one, of course, starts, I guess you could say, in the Garden of Gethsemane um, on the the evening of the of Easter Thursday. And yet it goes through, right through to the darkness, the horrific darkness of Good Friday and then the big emptiness of Easter Saturday. And then comes and there's this bright shining light that happens on Easter Sunday morning, confirmed to the disciples on Easter Sunday night. And here we are on Easter Monday and the whole world has changed. All of that gives me hope that there is one who has gone through the wilderness for us. And he's gone through all kinds of wildernesses, the worst that there can be, and he come, came out the other side. And as we are in him, for those of us who follow him, uh, basically we kind of jump on his train and he will carry us through our wilderness. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we do know that there's a redemptive element even in the difficult times that we're going through. That's just the beginning when I start to think about Easter and hope. I'm talking with Sheridan Voicey. He and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Maybe you could consider the wilderness um, experience that you have been in. Maybe you are in one now. Um, How does the resurrection hope of Jesus, how does the reality that Jesus not only died on the cross um, in order to uh, pay the penalty for our sins, but that he rose from the dead to open a pathway for us to eternal life. Um, how does that change the experience that you are having right now in the wilderness? Or how did it change a wilderness experience through which you have journeyed? We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. My conversation with Sheridan Boise. He is a friend of ours from across the pond. You can hear him on the BBC. You can also read what he is writing at SheridanVoise.com. Um, Sheridan, people go through all kinds of wilderness experiences. Um, one of the people who responded to your post on this topic um, at SheridanVoise.com, the article, When You're Lost in the Wilderness, Remember This, Um, One of the people who responded, his name is Bill, and he's 80 years old, and he talks about um, the wilderness of uh, that he's experiencing now, sort of in the rhythm of going to these farewell luncheons. And I'm assuming that what he is attending are, you know, events that attend to the passage, uh, the passing of of a of a person. And he is 80 years old, and so he says, you know, I, I. I'm invited to a lot of these, like this goes on and on, and maybe I should be more selective um, about the invitations I accept. Um, mm. What I'm wondering um, on Bill's behalf right now, um, there's a wilderness in anticipating that this life is coming to an end, and those we know, most of the people we know in this world maybe uh, have passed away or are passing away. My parents are now in their 80s. They experience this a lot. Um, the avoidance of uh, of going to these kinds of services or luncheons doesn't help. Uh, and um, and I had a friend who once told me, you know, uh, weddings going to we- going to weddings, you know, that's um, that's optional. Going to funerals, that's uh, that's critical. Like that's required. Talk with us about yeah. attending to and tending to uh, death around us. Yeah, I mean, when we are facing the difficult times in life, uh, I think we are often faced with that kind of decision that that Bill has had to make. And the, the, for those who haven't, you know, read his comment, the fact is he does keep on going. 
And um, mm-hmm. I think that can be that can Bless be applauded. Him, right? Is the fact, yeah, right. Bless him. Um, you know, it, it can also be for somebody else. It can, can be something something else. For 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 instance, uh, the person who is really wanting to get married and then are invited to another engagement party, and that can feel like another death for them. Or for the couple that are longing for a child, and then there's um, another baby shower. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. So look, there are times in which to to give ourselves a little bit of headspace. It is, I think, appropriate to to not go along with those things and just you know to, to to politely decline just because of your own heart and where it's at, and you need to kind of look after your soul, um, but also for the sake of others to be like Bill and actually go along to that because we are there for people in their darkest moments. And is that not something that comes out of the Easter story? Uh, if we were to go back in time, and we were to if our if our culture, our Western culture had not been affected by the very events of Easter, I think we'd be very surprised at the kind of life we'd be living now and the kind of answers we might be suggesting to Bill as a result. Something as simple as humility all came out of Easter before the cross, before Jesus humbling himself to the point of being sacrificed by the Roman state. Humility was not a virtue to be humble was to be downtrodden. Jesus transformed the very definition of one word called humility. Now, that's just one example. The very idea that we have that, that we should look after other people in our society, that even the state has a role and responsibility to do that, all of that can be traced back to the Judeo-Christian ethic, and in particular, the shaping of culture as a result of Easter Sunday and the death that Jesus went through and the resurrection that happened as a result. So all of this, we're actually speaking out of, you know, we're fish that don't know we're wet. You know, we're speaking out of a culture that has been profoundly shaped by the very event of Easter, even if we don't follow it personally ourselves. So where does this leave us with somebody like Bill? Well, the fact is that death is not the end. That in the midst of our wilderness, our difficulty, our disappointments, and my goodness, some of the people that I know, they are still going through some horrific things. I know people with long-term physical health problems. And, you know, one girl I know who just, she's in a specially made wheelchair. She can't get out. She has a condition where her her joints literally fall apart overnight. Um, she has to p- kind of push her shoulder back into place and her ribs back into place. You know, you can imagine. Now, it's very difficult for that woman to get through the day. It is her faith that gets her through the day to just take another step, to kind of wheel the chair another inch forward. Uh, without that, take that away. Why even bother? But here's the thing. We have that wonderful story of Cleopas and his friend as they're walking on Easter Saturday uh, to Emmaus. And they're in the wilderness. Everything's gone wrong. The one that they had hoped was going to come and change the world and release uh, Israel from the grip of Roman tyranny had, had been crucified and everything's upside down. They're completely confused. And who walks along them, even though they can't recognize him? It's Jesus. Before the resurrection has kind of happened, uh, well, sorry, it's, it's actually after the resurrection, but you know, before everything has completely come good and we know exactly what has happened, you have this presence walking alongside them. And that is, I think, what we can say that we might still be waiting for everything to come good in our situation, for 
the healing to happen or the marriage or the children or whatever it might be that we hope for and long for that has us in the wilderness. We may not even get it in this life, but we do have somebody who's walking alongside us and who can strengthen us, empower us, leave our hearts beating hard as a result of our meeting him, giving us meaning and redeeming and recycling those experiences into something that we never expected could come out of the difficulty that we're going through. That is the hope that we have before we even talk about the fact that one day, Bill, you, me, every other believer in Jesus is going to be raised to brand new life, and we don't have to face those difficult problems anymore. So as you're talking, Sheridan, two, um, two things came to mind. When you, were, um, when you were talking about, you know, what would the world be like had Jesus never died and never risen from the dead, um, for those of you who are listening, uh, and maybe you have read or haven't read Jeremiah Johnston's book, Unimaginable, came out came out a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Um, what would our world be like without Christianity? Um, there's a there's a chapter in there on the question, you know, what would the world be like without the crucifixion? What would the world be like without the resurrection? Um, certainly, what would the world be like without Christianity? Is um, in sort of the it is the texture of the entire book. Um, and then when you're talking about suffering, real suffering, um, suffering that endures, not just for a season, but in some cases for a lifetime, I'm reminded of um, of Johnny Erickson Tata's book Heaven, um, mm. and and just her the the appeal that she makes that right the the reason that God continues to give her life, she argues, is that she might increase her capacity to be, to be prepared for the fullness of the glory she's going to experience. So, you know, if heaven, if heaven is our true home um, and heaven is the place you long to, to be because the suffering of this world is so great, let me commend to you Johnny Erickson Tata's book, Heaven, um, Your Real Home, Our Real Home. It's just an excellent it's not just a reminder that um, that suffering has has a place, but that there is a preparation that goes on here um, that increases our capacity to actually experience the fullness of God then and there. And um, so just thought I would commend those to our listeners today. Sheridan, yeah. as we um, conclude our time together today, um, talk with me about Easter where you are, because it is a little bit different in terms of things that are... Uh, brought to the forefront um, that maybe aren't brought to the forefront here. So talk about Easter in the, in the UK. Yeah, well, look, um, yesterday was this bright, beautiful, and even warm day, uh, which we haven't had a lot of. We've had, we have had so much darkness. We have had so much rain. Um, everything has been muddy, and we have been in our third national lockdown as a result of coronavirus. Mm. But yesterday... Yesterday, the sun was out and it was shining bright and it was Easter Sunday and you could just for the first time taste hope again. Um, my wife and I went to church physically for the first time in over 12 months. And Amen. it was just a, it was such a glorious time. Our churches here have been allowed to meet during this third lockdown, um, socially distanced, of course, and with people wearing masks um, and, you know, limited singing in church because of the, the medical evidence about, you know, spit and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, hasn't been what we've wanted, but it has been allowed has allowed us to be physically in the same room. Now, my wife and I, because of my wife Merrin's role in the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine development, we've been kind of even a little bit more stringent um, about kind of maintaining social distance. Because if she happened to have come down with COVID, 
um, then the whole vaccine operation could have really been in jeopardy. So uh, it was wonderful to go there. And I think there was that note of hope for a lot of Christians yesterday that maybe we're starting to move out of this. Um, our fatality rate is significantly dropping as a result of increased vaccination rates. Um, we're moving through this. Doesn't mean we're out of it. It looks like there could even be another wave coming from Europe that we've got to be very mindful of. So we've got to be careful about that here. But we're moving forward, I think. And my big prayer is that, you know, in this last 12 months that we've had that have just been so, so historically upending for so many people. I mean, they're talking about generations of uh, mental health problems as a result of this coronavirus crisis here. I'm sure it's the same in the United States. It is. Uh, huge, huge needs there, um, let alone, you know, the financial impacts that are going to, uh, we're going to have to face. There's huge challenges ahead. I'm just been praying that that would just be reminding of us, uh, all of us, that um, we don't have it within ourselves to just simply wander on through life and succeed. Uh, that, you know, all of our personal development courses and our self-help books and all of our mindfulness apps and uh, all of our podcasts on, you know, mindful living and everything, they, they just don't go deep enough. We need the empowering presence of the very Spirit of God to come in and give us new life and love and joy and faith and hope and forgiveness uh, so that we can face these crises. We can walk through this wilderness and all of that goes back to Easter because it was as a result of Easter that the Holy Spirit is available for us to fill us, empower us, transform us, change us, and particularly to empower us to face difficulty. And uh, that's my real prayer for the United Kingdom, um, rapidly secularizing, uh, that we might come to the end of ourselves and recognize we don't have it in us to cope well moving on. We need the power of God in our life. Amen. All right. Well, that'll take us from Easter to Pentecost. And so we look forward to talking with you about that <laughs> next time. <laughs> Indeed. Great to talk that's to you, Carol. Oh, it's so great to talk with you. That's Sheridan Voicey. You can hear him on the BBC. You can also read what he's writing at SheridanVoicey.com. We'll be right back. All right, you guys know how widely I like to read. There is an opinion piece today in the L.A. Times, um, which, you know, if you don't go to the L.A. Times very often, then you can get what's behind their paywall. So this is an op-ed entitled, Why Do Bystanders Fail to Intervene When They See Others in Pain? And it gets at the root of the uh, of the answer to the question. It's actually not the person, um, it's not the identity of the person who has uh, who is in need, who, who has been attacked. So you and I would remember the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not the identity of the Jew that matters. It's how the person in a position to help sees themselves. So it in that story, it would be how the, the Samaritan saw themselves as a, as a person um, and, and valuable and created in the image of God that produces in us the desire to help another human being in a similar circumstance. It's worth reading because it's one of those articles that you would absolutely be able to comment on today in conversations. Um, in other headline news, I am going to turn with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College to some Georgia election law coverage, as well as uh, conversations about what's going on in D.C. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So when and where does your teen open up and talk? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. 
Just as you and I are more comfortable in certain settings, our kids also let down their guard when they feel safe. Have you figured out where they like to hang out? Parents, notice the times and locations that your teen is unplugged and willing to talk, and then seek out that venue for future conversations. Become a student of your teen's preferences. A cup of coffee, a favorite spot in town they like. Maybe they open up late at night. Mom, Dad, pay attention. A little effort on your part can go a long way to building a deep, long-lasting relationship with your child. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, welcome back. Welcome back. Hope everyone had a good Easter yesterday. Oh, he is risen. Yep, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, so we're Easter people. So, you know, we could just be stomping around uh, for a long time in that material because um, it never gets old. It never gets old, right? And it makes all things new and it makes all things possible and it changes everything. And yeah, woo. Yep. The, the the reason for hope, and not that we can't hope in other uh, things in a secondary way that God does and, and is doing, but that's the ultimate one. And uh, it, it was, uh, uh, I think, uh, coming at no better time to, to put our hope in that and to put our hope in Him. That's exactly right. So as you and I are having conversations about what's going on in the world and what's going on in American politics and what's going on... Um, yeah, in all of the problematic areas, like, right, you and I are having those conversations in light of the gospel. We're having those conversations in view of um, a coming redemption of all things when Jesus Christ returns. We're having these conversations in view of um, the fact that everything's not going to get fixed here and now. We work to Um, make things reflective of the kingdom of God, but we also recognize that we live um, in between the already and the not yet. So with all of that in mind, good sir, let's talk about um, the new Georgia election law. It's been, uh, the reporting on it, in my view, has been um, uh, very, very flawed. And so I'm wondering what your take is on um, what we are hearing about the Georgia election law versus what's actually in it. Yeah, and the fallout has been, therefore, very damaging for the people of Georgia. I know Major League Baseball just pulled out the All-Star game, and I think there's other things in the works from other corporations and such that are going to not do well for the state of Georgia. And, yeah, I think there's been misstatements about it and gross misstatements. Uh, There's been claims that it's going to uh, massively shut up voter access, that it's going to even be going back to the Jim Crow era, uh, which, of course, Georgia was part of. And I I think uh, this this all way, way um, mischaracterizes what's going on in the law. Yes, the law was passed in reaction to the fact that uh, many Republicans who who voted for it believe that there were things done wrong or or miscounted in in the last uh, election. But I was actually surprised at how reasonable the 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 adjustments were. And and so really, uh, for one thing, 
uh, the law actually expands early voting or the requirements for early voting so that people can vote if they need um, to, to get there before Election Day. It retains what they've had for a long time, which is you can vote for um, you can vote uh, early uh, absentee for any reason. You don't have to give a reason like some other states. So they've kept that. Um, and the stuff that's getting some some play is uh, you now have 11 weeks rather than almost six months to request an absentee ballot. But 11 weeks is still, I think, you know, a good amount of time for for an active voter. Um, there's some there was a question about uh, uh, I'll mention just two other things. One, the the fact that you need some form of ID uh, to vote <clears throat> particularly early. But I actually think that improves on the old law and the old law. You had to trust that the election official would look at your signature, look at a signature on file and say that this must have been from you. And I don't know about you. I have trouble telling people's handwriting. Now you're able to put down either a driver's license number, an ID number or attach a utility bill of some kind just to make sure we know that your vote is being counted as you. Uh, and then finally, there was this controversy about not uh, groups not being able to pass out water and food in line. And the idea was that this was supposed to suppress voters and not allow them to, you know, make them faint in the in in in, in the line. And uh, it turns out election poll workers are still allowed to pass out water. Um, it's that they don't want partisan groups. Uh, going up and down the lines, handing out things to people about to vote when they have a big interest in who's voting. And you can imagine with how much people distrust each other now, how much partisan rancor, the dividing line. Um, if there's a close election and someone on their phone snaps a video of the National Rifle Association or some left-leaning group handing out pizza or, or drinks – in a voting line and people saying, look, they're buying votes right before the election. It really, it was just trying to, uh, on the part of Georgia, uh, not let some accusation like that be made. You're still going to be able to get water. You're still going to be able to be taken care of in line. It's just trying to tamp down things like that. So I, I know that's a longer description. There's even more in it. But I think in general, it was a fairly sensible attempt to make sense of what needed tweaked and improved. And it really ended up being more tweaks and improved improvements rather than some sort of massive overhaul meant to help one party over the other. I think it actually, in the end, won't help one party much over the other when it's actually put into place. I think that um, the more people who can vote is better, but the uh, but we have to know who's voting, and there has to be a way to verify that. And if you're going to make me prove that I have had a vaccination— to uh, just be a part of regular society, it does not seem unreasonable for you to have to prove who you are in order to be able to vote. Yep. And, and I think that uh, deep down, yes, there are partisan things on both sides of this issue. But I think actually the Republicans and Democrats have both have legitimate ideas in mind. Uh, a, a popular government must have participation by we the people. And I think the Democrats at their best are emphasizing that. But if 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 it's all the people ruling as equals, then the rule of law 
has to be paramount in the way that the people express their views, which means we have to know that the elections are being conducted according to rules, according to laws. And I think that's what Republicans at their best are emphasizing. And the two wings, the rule of law and consent to the governed, have to be balanced in a well-ordered popular government. And, and I think that that's what any good bipartisan efforts on this would need to look like going forward. All right, Dr. Adam Carrington and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We are going to talk about uh, President Biden's infrastructure proposal. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hear the bells ringing, they're singing that you can be born again. Continue my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, let's talk a little bit about infrastructure. Um why this priority over others? Um, what do you think is going on here? And um, it's so massive. The numbers are crazy. Yeah, it's it, it seems like we are playing with monopoly money at this point and have been for really a couple presidencies given given uh, the spending. But I I think what you're seeing with President Biden going with an infrastructure bill is uh, an attempt to at least look more bipartisan. President Trump was one of his big projects that he talked about that really didn't put much effort behind was infrastructure. In fact, there was a joke that it's infrastructure week again in the, in the, in the Trump presidency, but it pointed to this broader idea that, um, you know, we created this massive infrastructure system in the 1950s of roads and highways and and built on it with other other transit systems. And there hasn't been a ton of updating of it. So that's what he's wanting to lead with. But uh, is this updating of bridges, this updating of roads to make it so that uh, America and also to emphasize that American companies are going to be the ones that are going to have the the first say in being able to do these projects. So American workers and American drivers are supposed to benefit. But the massive price tag also means there's a lot of other things that are going to be in there. So I think the popular things are going to be that. It's going to expand broadband internet into rural communities. But the there's also going to be a lot of more uh, uh, typically left-leaning investment in um, electric car research, electric in, uh, investment in uh, more environmentally uh, 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 emphasized projects. And there's going to be a, a number of things along those lines. And as you said, it's going to be about $2 trillion in spending when we've already spent a very large amount with the previous bill, uh, the, pre, the, the law that, that, that gave more money to Americans because of uh, COVID. So one thing, if this gets through, that will really be sort of proven beyond any doubt, if there is any now, is that the era of small government or even talking about small government is very much over. As Clinton said, the era of big government is over in the 90s. And we're into an era where we're going to have to ask, at what point does financial um, desire and financial responsibility start to actually conflict in the real world, not just in our own own worries. So I think those are the big things to keep in mind. Uh, there's going to be some popular things, but the price tag, we're going to have to ask those hard questions eventually. Uh, when is, is this going to be the thing that makes us have to do that? 
Um, there are there are things that people are talking about um, as infrastructure in this that are not historically understood to be infrastructure. But this is also not the uh, sort of the last thing on the president's agenda or progressive Democrats agenda, for that matter. Um, it sounds like the next thing that's going to be teed up is related to, quote unquote, families. Um, and so I just think people want to want to be looking and watching toward that. And so that makes me want to pivot to a conversation about the ongoing debate about abortion um, and and the Constitution um, and those of us who believe that life should be protected. Right. There's been an interesting argument that has bubbled up within the, the political right for those who, who are paying probably more attention than they should, like I do. But for for a while the you know the the consensus has been life begins at conception abortion is the taking of innocent human life it sh- human uh, uh, the unborn should be protected the debate has been how sh- what should be the role of the courts the federal government and the state government and how that happens and so for a while the conservative legal strategy has been overturn Roe v Wade the fundamental decision that declared there was a right to terminate a pregnancy and then leave it to where it was before then which was the states make laws protecting the unborn that that they're the really the place where by legislation or their own constitutional amendments, they would do so. Uh, there's now a rising debate within the political right w- about whether that's been the wrong approach. And, and the question comes down to, does the Constitution itself protect the right uh, of the unborn uh, to life? And does it do so against the states? And particularly, they're thinking about the 14th Amendment passed in during Reconstruction, where it either where it both says that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process, and that all should receive equal protection of the laws. And so um, it's gotten really acrimonious because the debate has come down to has the right failed for the last 40 years. But the other interesting question is everyone here agrees in this debate about the status of the unborn child morally and, and where they want it to be legally. It's interesting that at this moment where it seems like we have the most the highest chance of Roe v. Wade being in danger that we've had in a very long time, that the strategy itself is now being debated going forward. How do we best do this given given the circumstances? So I think that's something to watch out for going forward uh, is this debate within the right about the about what's the best way to achieve the end for the pro-life movement. A lot of stuff going on at the state level and a lot of robust conversations. Um, you know, I think that when people are thinking about this and engaging in conversations, I think each and every one of us needs to be at the place where we can articulate our pro-life position. So I am pro-life from conception to natural death. Um, and the the what happens at the end of life conversation comes up at least as often for me, Adam, as the conversation about um, abortion. And I think that yeah. that's the growing edge of the conversation in the culture as well. Um, we've yeah. got um, we've got like a minute left, which is probably not long enough for you and I to talk about whether or not our society, um, it, it, the if words might be losing their meaning in our society. I think they almost certainly are. But let's uh, let's direct people to the conversation. 
Right. There was this interesting John McCorder essay in The Atlantic, and he was focusing as a linguist on the question of the the word racism and how it's now become a word that has such diverse meanings or applications that that for, forget about what's you know that the, the people generally are against it, whatever it is, it's defining it. And I, I think that it points, though, to a broader question, which is as human beings, uh, the way we communicate, the way we, we work together is to speak. If we don't speak, we have to physically fight. And the primacy of words as a peaceful human and humane way of discussing is premised on the idea that you actually understand words commonly. And this even comes up the fact that we're celebrating the resurrection. There are even people who want to change Christian terminology and re-understand the resurrection, re-understand if Jesus was God. There's a similar thing in politics. And it's not even a question of who's right, so to speak. It's the idea that if we can't understand each other, we can't actually have a peaceful, common society. And that when words lose their meaning, as as they have, we're in a in a pretty rough spot where we've got to really do some basic rebuilding to even be able to have the conversations we need. So I know that's not a good note to end on or a happy note, but I think it's 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 a very legitimate one that the racism argument encaps is just one example of. There's many, many others. Absolutely. All right. We love talking with you, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You guys can follow him on Twitter at Carrington AM. Thanks so much as always for joining us. Thank you all. I'll end on he is risen. (laughs) He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. We'll be right back. All right, tomorrow we are going to uh, be talking Spring Share. So I'd love for you to be considering how this ministry has helped you to grow up into Christ in all ways, how we have not only planted the seed of the gospel in your life, but provoked you to be a person who sows peace in the lives of others. Um, Love to know how we have uh, helped you to produce a harvest of righteousness in your life to the glory of God and till the soil in the cultural conversations of the day. Those are going to be all the kinds of things we're going to be talking about during this spring share. So love for you to be thinking about that in advance, praying for us as we prepare for spring share um, and consider how you uh, are, are going to share with us. So that's how this works. This is listener-supported radio, and love for you to engage with us. Thank you, as always, to those of you who are ongoing monthly supporters. We absolutely rely um, on those regular gifts. Uh, And thank you for those of you who are able to give in extraordinary ways during particular seasons because God has brought a harvest of plenty into your life. So those are the conversations we're going to be having in the days ahead. Um, And I love this time of year and this uh, share opportunity because it's a great opportunity to talk about what God has done in and through this ministry. And let me just tell you, this has been a season of great abundance. And we are looking forward with great hope to all that God has planned uh, in the months and years ahead. We'll be right back with another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.